Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the designer Dan Hill. Dan's work spans interaction design, strategic design, urban design, systems design, teaching, writing. He's currently a director at Arup and was previously a part of the Helsinki Design Lab with Brian Boyer, who you may remember I interviewed a few months ago. And Brian and I talked a lot about strategic design, and Dan also worked with Brian and actually wrote a really great book about strategic design called Dark Matter and Trojan Horses that... I just really can't recommend enough. He was also the director of Fabrica for a bit and has taught in various design schools. But my first introduction to Dan was actually through his blog, City of Sound, which he's kept up for almost 20 years now and is just this really fascinating repository of his thinking on subjects ranging from architecture to web design to travel to reading. Uh, He's just consistently been one of my favorite writers on design and design-related subjects. And in this conversation, Dan and I kind of talk about all of that. We talk about why designer is still even the best description for his work. We talk about his move from interaction design to strategic design to systems design and kind of where his thinking is now. We also talk about his thoughts on a new kind of design education as well as the role of writing in his own work and his own design practice. This conversation was just so interesting to me. He's thinking about design at just a completely different level. And as much as I've enjoyed his writing over the years, I just found this discussion to be just completely kind of energizing and inspiring and and fascinating. I think this is a, a really good one. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. Those memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dan Hill. I was thinking about this conversation and thinking about you and your work and and what I wanted to talk to you about. And and you've had such an interesting career, at least from someone kind of looking over all the different types of work that you've done that span disciplines, span fields. And so I kind of want to start just kind of right in the heart of that. When you're when you're at a party or when you're introducing yourself to somebody, what do you what do you say that you do or how do you d- define your job? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a parent, so I never go to parties these days <laughs> unless, they're, unless they're kids' parties. Right, so, true. Okay. Um, in which case, I'll say I'm a dad. <laughs> All right, that works. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess I, I say designer, actually. And then, and then usually uh, – I can either leave it at that and then run away or, you know, someone will say, oh, cool, what kind of designer? And then then it immediately gets complicated. Right. So I'll then talk about, well, I'm, you know, depending on who I'm with, I might say, well, I work with cities a lot, you know. And but then immediately, of course, the more clued up will say, so you're an architect. And I'll say, no, well, I'm not really, but I'm not at all, technically. Um, Although I've hung around them long enough that I can speak lingo and, you know, might smell like an architect occasionally. So, um, you know, uh, I can, I do some things that are in the ballpark, but then equally, I'm deliberately not, you know, I'm absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, it immediately gets a bit complicated. Then, 
I might say, um, and someone else might say I'm an interaction designer, which is what I am technically, I guess, if I had a trade, if I had a, you know, a single mm-hmm. discipline specialism within the field of design that I can say I've done, um, you know, to some proficient level of degree or whatever. <laughs> Then it's certainly interaction design, and that defined certainly the early stage, much of the early stages of my career. Um, and I still, I think, think like one of them. Um, other times, it depends. I might even say service designer because mm. uh, you know, actually, a lot of my work now is hovering more towards the service design end of stuff. And then, if it's really a conversation, I can dig into. <laughs> That's uh, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, and I might say strategic designer. Okay. And then, and then that you know that really confuses people. But it's um, that's really what I've ended up thinking about a lot. Uh, again, now the first half of my career was defined around interaction design. The second half, thus far, has been around strategic design. But I'm really, you know, I'm really fluidly moving between things, and and that's that's again why strategic design, design isn't a bad title at the end of the day because it's not terribly well defined. That means you can be quite flexible with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly, my work is at you know multiple scales simultaneously sometimes. Yeah. And so, yeah, it jumps up and down that thing. I mean, that's kind of as I was thinking about your career. And something that I was struck by is how there's been this kind of consistent scaling up, it seems like, in the in the types of work, starting with what I'm going to call kind of traditional interaction design up yeah, to working with cities and thinking about cities. And so I kind of, you know, maybe, maybe it'd, it'd be helpful to kind of go back in time or, or kind of go over the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, did you study interaction design or how did, how did this word design become or designer become the term that best fits what you do? Yeah. I mean, I didn't train as a designer, so I'm self-taught from a practice point of view, but then, you know, I've done it long enough now that I can kind of hold my own. (laughs) Right. Um, And you end up teaching it, you know, so it's one of those things. It's kind of, there are many great designers, obviously, that also weren't trained as designers who are much, you know, more proficient at design than I am. But it's it's certainly not something even that existed when I was actually at college first time around. Um, you couldn't do interaction design and service design didn't exist. It's what I trained as, uh, what I did at college, if that helps. I did a computer science degree to begin with. Okay. And then, and then on that there's certainly bits of that degree course that I gravitated towards. And so, you know, human computer interaction was a module on that degree. Mm-hmm. And I found that endlessly interesting. And I think that, you know, that sowed the seeds for it. But I'd say even going back further than that, I was kind of using a computer from very early days and using it to draw with when I was, you know, 12 years old. And yeah. This was in like 1982, 83. So this was early days of Apple II in this country, in the UK, the Sinclair Spectrum, which is a bit like the Commodore 64 equivalent, really right. early home computing, personal computing stuff, when I was drawing bits pixel by pixel on a screen. Yeah. So uh, there was a 
there was an attempt to do that from a very early days. <laughs> right. And I don't know quite where that came from, but um, just an interest in that. And then it, computer science became that. And then I graduated from that and um, worked for a year in a city council in Manchester, two years actually, and then went back to college and did a, a master's in urban sociology. Okay. And that's when the interest in cities started emerging. And I think also this... Um, the human sense of perspective that I got a little bit on computer science, uh, I would then, you know, bust out a bit more with sociology and begin to talk about networks and people and relationships and cities and right. so on. Yeah. So that was a thing. And then, and then, um, after that, it was very much working on the urban regeneration of Manchester, but the perspective I was looking at it from, and this was sort of mid nineties, um, was the really early days of the web and then beginning to think through, well, how does that change the way that people do what they do? How does it change the way right. that like a graphic designer in Manchester in 1996 would change the way that she was doing that work? And it was, I, I would approach that um, from a sociological perspective. It happened to be though at the time then I thought, well, actually the way to figure out the way the web changes what someone does is to build a website with them. <laughs> right, and, yeah. Like, who the hell knows? Like, is this thing going to catch on? Yeah. We, we just didn't know. Right. So, so I ended up designing and building websites with people, because you could in those days, just, mm -hmm. you know, using code almost copied from magazines and um, view source on other websites and stuff. And th this is like mid-90s now about? Yeah, 95, okay. 96. So... Um, so we ended up build, I ended up building a website for this bit of the city center. It was called the Northern Quarter Network. It was one of the really early websites around a physical place. You know, so like a, the idea of a place having a website, that was sort of very unusual, yeah. relatively, actually. There was another one in Europe. Amsterdam had one, and then we had this one in Manchester. There were probably some in the U.S. I don't know where they were, though. But um, simultaneously, you can see like a lot of things in my career kind of coming from that moment um, yeah. and I realized that actually I was kind of enjoying the design more than the research or rather I was enjoying being a designer more than I was enjoying being an academic I was sort of an academic at that point oh, okay um, and so I realized actually you know I could do this web design lark uh, for a living more and the other stuff will find a way to kind of surface itself when did that word design kind of when did you become aware of that word design or that designer was, you know, all of these interests that you had, you were kind of circling this. When did, yeah. when, when were you able to narrow in on that or how did that start to kind of emerge for you? Mm, good question. I mean, round about then. <laughs> okay. Um, round about then, uh, there were a lot of things going on. There was, uh, in the UK anyway, you know, a very strong graphic design scene at that time, yeah. dominated by, um, you know, people like Designers Republic or Vaughn right. Oliver or, um, yeah. you know, sort of very, Malcolm Garrow was still doing stuff, you know, so very interesting Peter Saville um, set of designers around at that time. And my work was about, uh, you know, the creative scenes in cities and the relationship between, say, design and cities and things like that. And it was in Manchester, and Manchester was... Uh, Manchester and Sheffield, Warp Records were from Sheffield, Designers Republic were in Sheffield, Manchester had Peter Saville and Malcolm Gara, you know, right. these, these, the relationship between a record label, a graphic design firm, the city, and then what became the internet, it was all incredibly fluid. Yeah. And, and there's a very strong kind of, you know, independent scene in the UK around that kind of stuff. 
Right. Um, so it was because it was independent, therefore it was relatively accessible. You, you, every it was mm. it was a post-punk spirit of thinking. Well, we could all do something a bit like that. And so you end up designing flyers for your mate's club night at the end, you know, right, no, right. Peter Savile or anything, but basically, you know, you're kind of um, in the same scene. Yeah. Even in a very accessible domestic kind of way. So I realized that I was doing design informally. And um, that's when, you know, I started basically schooling myself just by, you know, buying Emigre magazine or reading, right. you know, just um, a lot of reading, a lot of trying things out. I mean, some horrible stuff I would have designed at that time. <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah, all of us have at that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But because I, I think I was so conscious of it for a while as well, that I hadn't gotten through a design background. And so I had no sense of things like grid systems. Like right. How the hell would I know? So right. that was something that had to be pointed out to me at one point, generally. And then I thought, oh, I better go and learn about that stuff. Yeah. And but meanwhile, the internet was still in this very DIY mode, obviously. Like people were literally like view source on their website, hack something together, see what happens. And there were no particular guidelines and rules around that. Right. Um, it felt like it felt like a very open field. Yeah. And then um, so you could get a long way quite quickly, actually, in those days. It was kind of open territory in a way that formerly, say, graphic design wasn't so open, actually. Web design was a much more um, right. open to an outsider if you're in that sense. And because I knew enough technically, because I had a computer science degree behind me, and I was part of a scene that was then very fluid around creative industries, then uh, it became something one did, and you sort of trained your way through it. And then you get to the point where uh, I was then designing websites for the music industry down in London, and again, learning from other designers I was working alongside in a very, very small early stages, you know, what we could have, would have called then new media company, mm. building websites for Virgin Records and EMI. And... Um, to some extent, you know, bluffing my way through that and then but realizing at some point, actually, I'm okay at this and realizing there was a certain kind of design um, aesthetic that I was interested in or comfortable with and um, matched what a bunch of people wanted at the time. Then I, I shifted to the BBC and, okay. and then moved into something that, you know, ultimately, that, that was kind of the consolidation of that as a career, if you like. Previously, I guess I could have gone in a number of different directions. And, it, you know, if, it had, if we'd have had that conversation then, now, I mean, I, I would have been, people would have been talking about things like startups and stuff like that. And I, I had no particular interest in that then, right. probably now, but um, I certainly could have gone in multiple directions at that point. But I think it was something that moving to the BBC, I realized actually that this is like proper. And I started then ultimately running teams and then running a team of like 50 or 60. and you know, realizing that I'm the design lead for iPlayer, which is the BBC's big on-demand media thing, along with a you know a couple of other senior design figures in the organization, and um, you know that's that's ten years later. So yeah. in that ten years, that's a lot of kind of practice under under my belt by that. Yeah, and you know it's interesting to me. I'm I'm a bit younger than you. But I kind of came, I was in high school in the early 2000s, and this was kind of right when I grew up in the suburbs, uh, and so I, I remember when we got internet access, 
Um, and so my first introduction to graphic design was online and it was through mm. uh, blogs like Design Observer Speak Up and exactly. and then exactly. I subscribed to Immigre and kind of did all of that. And so I was very, my early design education was very rooted in the kind of theory writing side, but then I didn't know anything about grids or kerning or anything like that. And so then when I went to school to study design, I kind of, you know, thought I knew everything. I had all this had all those immigrants in my back pocket and then realized I didn't know how to actually do any of it. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so how did you find that your, you know, for lack of a better word, non-traditional background or coming from outside design, did that, do you think, how did that influence either how you approach design or what your design looked like or how you even thought about what design mm. was? Mm, yeah, certainly. I mean, a few things there. One, I don't really thought about this coherently, but I suspect something around um, the ability to understand the technical, um, almost it's actually philosophy of the internet, mm. and then address that in the design. You know, because again, I had, a, I had that comp sci degree. Uh, not that I was a brilliant computer scientist at all, by any means. I was very much drawn towards the human end of that spectrum yeah. but um i remember reading a book by paul durish some years later about the foundations of embodied interaction and i realized that i you know conceptually i had a pretty good understanding of a relatively deep level of the way that computers work the way that networks work the way that systems work and then the ability to then think of html in terms of separating content from presentation and um, modular design adaptive design all of those things were very natural things for me to get after. So although I was sort of at a surface level attracted to, on the one hand, these very rich aesthetics, um, again, on one on the one end, like the likes of Vaughan Oliver or Designers Republic, you know, these very intense, visceral aesthetics, or emigre for that matter, um, David Carson and so yeah. on. On the other end of that, then, um, you know, as usual, the Swiss modernists and all of those things, like, you know, equally uh -huh. like, and drawn towards those things aesthetically. Yeah. My my instinct as a designer, if I were as most useful, was really in this more conceptual level, which was mm. systems, mm -hmm. uh, then people's interaction with those things, because that had been my background, which happened to then turn into a right. discipline right. called interaction design or service right. design. But it was coincidence. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that um, being the autodidact, you know, like self-taught. In that sense, you're you're really reaching out and grasping references and reading from all over the place. And I'd always done that as well. I'd had this very kind of um, diverse character, I think, as a as a as a person, maybe. But certainly, you know, I was never going to be, you know, what I'm a science guy or I'm a humanities guy. It's kind right. of interested in both and would reach across freely from all of them and arguably you know, probably relatively shallow understanding of each one. Right, yeah. Uh, but the ability to kind of maneuver across that field, I think, also meant that when it when it then surfaced later, many years later, that um, I remember people have said to me, you know, for a designer, you read a lot. and Or, mm. you know, my references that I would be reaching for might come from, I don't know, it sounds horribly pretentious, but like modernist literature yeah. um, theory as much as Japanese architecture, as much as football. Right. You know? And um, 
that's something that I found repeatedly useful and just naturally. It's not something I've really had to like inculcate or work at. It's just been the way that I see the world. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think those two things then define the kind of designer that I am. I'm not the person you go to for like a deep understanding of the difference between the letter E in Helvetica and Air. Like, right. you know, I, I can do that. But at a basic level, yeah. you know, I'm not. I'm not that, but um, there are many, many people better at that than I am. But my ability is probably to jump um, contacts relatively quickly. And then that meant that my career has been then defined around, I sometimes think of it as kind of like, you know, the end of, I guess it's Apocalypse Now, where the guy is kind of riding the atom bomb from the Mm. plane. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, not Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove. and I kind of feel like I've just ridden the internet into industry after industry. And that's the ability then to sort of understand something in the, in the music industry and then jump to the media industry and then jump to architecture and built environment. And then from there to Finland where I did it in sort of in government, social innovation. And then Italy was about the same education sector right. and then back to the UK and so on. And it's basically the same maneuvers each time, but in a completely different context each time. So it's kind of, you know, deeply, quickly understanding something, grasping hold of it, building a framework yeah. sense and being able to substitute in and out quite freely. Yeah. That's something that defines, I think, the kind of way I think about design. Uh, and that it's, it's interesting. And it, I, it, I think if someone looked over your resume, they would see this kind of career as an at a superficial level, a career as an interaction designer, and then this kind of quick turn into these kind of bigger ideas. And I think the way you're talking about it is, and I don't mean to put silos around, you know, the difference between interaction or strategic or service, um, yeah. but it's almost like a for you, it's this kind of widening of what these terms mean or a blurring of the line between these. And I think something yeah. like strategic design in Helsinki is just an exaggerated form of interaction design, uh, yeah, potentially. I think, I think I see them as a continuum, really, or a series of shifting scales, mm-hmm. perhaps, as much as anything, in that um, I keep meaning to draw this diagram. I haven't got around to it ever. But, um, you know, like an interaction design is designing a particular touch point, um, a particular experience. You know, it's kind of it's quite discreet and focused and you know i as a designer i love nothing more actually than doing that sometimes you know i I, i'm still i still spend the early you know late night early morning in in design making a newspaper or oh interesting putting pixels on a on a website it's just that the my output for those things is something other than it was like 15 years ago when i was making it because it was the bbc someone was about to use that service but anyway so I certainly still am drawn to the interaction design end of it. I, you know, endlessly be interested in product design, interaction design, the the crafting of why a control knob versus a switch is an important right. discussion in in and of itself. Then I think the service design, which is the you know the orchestration of a series of touch points into a coherent experience, one yeah. way or another. Clearly, you can see that that is relevant in my career in a few different places. Certainly the the BBC, um, but we were thinking about those things very early on in that world, actually, even, you know, like musical experiences or, or media experiences that are shifting from physical to digital to right. out in the streets to back at home, 
And we couldn't do a lot of that stuff at the time because we didn't have the tech to do it. But, you know, it was clearly that was where it was going immediately. Yeah. As soon as you as soon as we could do it. And then, of course, in, uh, in buildings and cities and things, that's really relevant. Like how people interact with a bus or a building is a, is a service design question. Right. And then the strategic design bit is then zooming further out and then say, and getting into this stuff about the dark matter, which is that how do you then scale that equitably or scale that across a system mm-hmm. so you can change a system, mm-hmm. which is, a, again, that's more like a nested thing. These are interaction service strategy zooms right. up and down that right, right, right. And it's and it's where, you know, again, this sounds pretentious, but it's kind of like thinking about urban design by starting at the level of the doorknob and then right. yeah. the city, you know, and then back back zooming yeah. up and down again. And it's why I always got on well with people like Brian and Rory, because they're both architects by training and then yeah. also yeah. comfortable with that zooming. I think there's certain kinds of design disciplines, industrial design architecture, interaction design, which are in, intrinsically about that zoom in scales and multiple integrated systems moving in and out. Um, but yeah, I see that that is the, that I can see as a continuum, the strategic design layer, the strategy, the way that something scales or spreads or changes a system is, is really powerfully informed by being able to think about the individual interactions. You know, it just breaks right makes the strategy better if you understand the importance of execution and bringing users and user research into yeah, the way you yeah. define strategy. So that's been really useful. And it, conversely, the other way, if you're designing an interaction and then able to think about, well, how does that spread or scale or maybe right. it doesn't scale, you know, that's equally a strategic choice. But um, that film is always very comfortable to me. And then uh, so the conversation I had this morning with another designer here at Arup was... Um, speculative design and, yeah and it's a tool that i've used numerous times but i really think well speculative design is just like a ratchet or like a time slider on those things oh interesting so we can say like you've got this interaction service strategy stuff and then if let's let's like ratchet up the speculative design dial to 20 years then for sure it becomes this very propositional speculative thing but maybe you can do that you know we've made a we made a, a short film for a project last year, just an internal design um, process. And we just looked at how are people going to call autonomous shuttles? You know, mm. just look at like the two or three interactions required to make that happen. They don't really exist in the way that we did it. And so we, we spoofed interfaces. We you know chose certain things just because they weren't relevant and focused on other things. And we're making the film to flush out the questions. It's not to say this is the interaction. It's just to flush out the questions around the interactions. Equally, uh, did a session last week with Stockholm City Council. And, um, you know, when he's saying, so what's the 21st century city-making team? That's mm. a strategic design question. And it's with the speculative design, like slider. Oh, that's so like, interesting. It's, you know? Yeah. Scroll up forward, and then it's a kind of, oh, maybe the team has, like, a writer in it. And... Uh, psychologist you know as well as an architect you know it enables you to have that freer conversation yeah. and then you can roll that back to today you'd like ratchet it back because then you want to say well yeah but what about next week right i'm not satisfied to do the speculative design thing for an end in itself it's just you know i want to kind of free up the thinking in order to then pull it back to today yeah uh, so i kind of group those three disciplines as like nested russian dolls almost the interaction yeah. service strategy thing, and then speculative is like a, a slider you move up and down into the future. Um, so, I, 
I don't know if that was what your question was. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, that was so, I, I don't even care, <laughs> you know, because that was, that to me, that actually helped me articulate a lot of, a lot of things just, you know, both in this conversation and the way that I've been thinking about them more generally. And I think the, the scale of speculative kind of adding that on, um, cause speculative design is something that comes up on this podcast a lot and kind of how that fits in. And I, I, you just articulated that in a way that I haven't been able to yet. Um, and I, the... it's funny to draw the diagram, but it <laughs> yeah. is, it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it helps me understand it in that way because, uh, well, you know, we have a team here at Eric called Foresight who do the kind of long-term thinking and, and I'm trying to articulate what we do, which is a design team working on buildings and spaces and infrastructure and uh, services and all kinds of things. And I'm trying to, you know, kind of get the sense that the future has kind of crashed into the present. You know, right. Where in the 60s, 70s, 80s, this kind of foresight thing was about scenario planning. And we can, let's, let's do a, a guess of what 2030 looks like, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm always trying to pull it back to today now. And um, the, then there's a there's just that differentiator there, just saying that you know all design is in the future, right? Definition, like we're all making something that doesn't quite exist yet. You know? Right. It's just a question of service. is this thing coming out next week? Like, are you working yeah. on a you know are you working on a book layout that's going to come out in six months, or are you working on the future of books? Right. You know, which is for like a speculative thing for twenty five years time. So you know they're both in the future. Yeah. It's just a sense of what what's the time scale, you know? Yeah, that is, I, I don't have anything else to say about that. Cause I, th I feel like you've just articulated everything that I've been trying to kind of figure out and something, you know, I got really into, I got really fascinated by strategic design after I talked to, to Brian Boyer and, and yeah. he and I kind of really talked about it at length about kind of what it means and, and what it is. And then yeah, I, I learned so much from him as well. I mean, he, he was, you know, one of my, um, key work partners right um, for a very kind of short period of time in a way but a very intense period we kind of basically figured out a lot of this stuff i think together yeah. through endlessly trudging through the snow in helsinki uh, talking and talking and talking <laughs> right and and after i mean and then after i talked to him i then read your kind of book essay dark matter and, and, and trojan horses which i could easily talk to you about that for an hour mm. in and of itself i marked that up a lot um mm. but something that's i i would like to kind of just touch on t quickly because i did talk to brian about it and you talked about it in the book but the the kind of opposition or the i, I don't know the word exactly but how these things that we're talking about now are different than design thinking and i know you've written a lot about kind of you know, I, I don't want to say the the failures or, or the problems with design thinking, but how this is different and how how practicing design in this way is different than what has now been billed or sold as design thinking. And I was wondering if you could just kind of articulate that a little bit here just to kind of show how how those are different or, um, yeah, you know, how the how the out, outcome is different. Yeah, and it's a tricky one because um, I don't want to imply that design thinking is necessarily bad per se. Right, um, yeah. It was, you know, the stuff I was writing at the time was written at the height of folks like IDEO mm -hmm. um, selling a very clear service around that. And, of course, there are brilliant thinkers and designers at IDEO. Um, 
And so I don't want to kind of cast a pall over the whole thing at all. Um, but what I felt was kind of getting a bit out of hand was the, the, the slightly lazy kind of extrapolation from the sense that um, everybody is a designer, which I would buy into in a sense, as in, um, you know, the, the Bernard Rodofsky kind of, um, I was very interested in the early days in vernacular architecture, for yeah. instance, when yeah. so architecture, um, equally interested in modernist architecture, but it, you know, it's just sort of, that was very interesting because of the kind of design background that I had, which was right. this systems built together that iterate over time and, and learning goes through the systems and so on. And it was also slightly DIY. So that, that was very interesting. So I'm very comfortable with the idea of at a, at a basic everyday level and, you know, sort of Victor Papanak kind of way, everybody is a designer. Fantastic. Uh, I'm equally comfortable with a level, with a level of people in business or government or others understanding uh, ways of thinking that are, you might say, designerly <laughs> and, you know, being open to multiple ways of thinking, understanding the techniques, understanding the likely value of it. Of course, I'm interested in that. You know, basically, I'm a designer. I'm selling my skills to them. It's going to be beneficial to me right. professionally if they understand what the hell they're buying and right. why it's valuable, you know. So, so I equally, I, the, the idea of raising the, a level of design literacy generally, right. fantastic also. And I, you know, I, I massively appreciate when I'm in a culture, let's say Sweden or the Netherlands or Japan or Finland, where the, the level of design literacy at the basic populace level is almost like background radiation. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's just good right. at a basic level, you know, um, makes everything a lot better. <laughs> So that's all good. The, the the lazy reach is then saying that then everybody can be a professional designer or everybody can do things that a professional designer does or that that level of literacy is enough right there. Right. And that kind of gets problematic because, um, first of all, it implies in a funny way that, you know, design thinking is like this magic bullet that you can pick up over a week-long course and right. then suddenly you're thinking in a completely different way and and all of the world's problems you know just become simple it, that doesn't happen as we know you know right. and that was almost the implicit right. promise that you just send your sea level management uh -huh. to a design thinking course they'll come back and you know they have a series of magic bullets they can fire at <laughs> right right and of course they don't because they are the same people with the same job title they had before their inbox is now five days bigger than it was five days ago they've still got the same problems and yeah. they're not really able to address anything coherently in that way equally um design doing to me was you know is very different to design thinking and right. in, in the in the in the design making doing kind of nexus is as we know, like where we figure out a lot of the stuff. It's not in the, it's not in the pure thinking area, right? Right. Because <laughs> we're thinking through making and designing, and uh, you know, we can all think about problems very easily. Right. The thought right. is the easy bit often. Right. Right. Um, it's the it's the making and the doing of stuff that is hard for various reasons. So I think you know that's that's where I want to say. So at some point then you need to hire a professional designer. I'd rather see a C-level a team go on a design thinking course, maybe it's totally fine, have a very you know, increased level of design literacy. If it's done well, fantastic. Yeah. But then they 
Then the response might be, for instance, then hire a chief design officer and build a design culture in the firm that would be, or the council. That would be a far more beneficial maneuver as opposed to not doing that and assuming that, great, we've got design covered. Yeah. You know, we're all yeah, yeah. And it's... And I know that it's very delicate, this thing, because I don't want to then imply that from a professional designer's point of view, like you or I, that we have some magic skills that other people don't have. But nonetheless, you know, your training as a designer right. is meaningful, right? And your practice then as a designer is meaningful, just as just in the same way as the practice of someone who's had a financial accountancy background. That's also meaningful. There's also a deep practice there. Designers don't understand that enough, for instance. Yeah. So it's not that it's better or worse or anything. And that was the other thing that I found problematic about design thinking. It was kind of oversold, again, as if it was this magic skill that you could just inherit. Yeah. And I think, A, you can't, and B, uh, it wouldn't make a blind difference even if you could because it turns out you also need all those other skills anyway. Right. Like if, you, if your whole workforce started thinking like a designer, it would be a disaster. Right. You right. get anything done. Right. <laughs> so... So what I was the analogy I was looking at in my essay was uh, as with food, I usually come back to that. It's kind of it's great that people know about food more than they did in the seventies. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that's beneficial to everybody. If people are cooking Thai food at home, amazing. You know, people are buying better cooking equipment, cooking with a wider and diverse range of things, eating healthier food. Shows like MasterChef, I think, are actually fantastic because they raise a level of literacy about food. That is only ever a good thing. Yeah. But at the same time, you can still go to a restaurant and have a professional chef right. cook your dinner, right? And that right. is something else. I will never be able to do what he or she does unless, frankly, I practice the crap out of it for years. Right. So that's the thing. And they're both good. So amateur, amateur chef at home, fine. Go and visit a professional chef when you want to do that. It's the same with design. It's as simple as that. And you know what I mean? And design yeah. things just suddenly kind of implied that, okay, amateur chef, you can do what a professional chef does. In fact, you don't need the professional chef anymore. Um, and that's, you know, that's the end of it. We're all, we're all good. I'm curious what you think, because over the course of your career, design has kind of gained a bigger and bigger kind of cultural currency where people at a at least at a base level, understand the importance or the value of design or having a design team. And I think design thinking, you know, despite everything you said, does have some, get some credit for kind of raising the public consciousness of design. Yeah. And, you know, your career shows that of moving from kind of working on screen to cities to systems, kind of how design can fit into that. And that contrast between everyone being a designer versus, you know, having the designers. And I've, I've mm. been struggling with articulating this idea of everyone being a designer, which I do agree. I do agree with at that base level. At the everyday vernacular level of, you know, you yeah. all, we all pick out curtains and right, right. Uh, move our furniture around and we're choosing to do this action versus action, that action with a, yeah. you know, some kind of, sequence of steps in mind and, you know, and, at a basic level and so you know, where, my my question is what's the where is that balance this is a big question that i don't expect you to actually have a very clear answer on but <laughs> that balance between design permeating everything not as colonizers but also not completely as kind of democratizing design it has to <laughs> kind of fall in the middle there somewhere i think yeah. um yeah, exactly. 
I mean, as you know, as usually most things, it's like <laughs> right. degrees, which is why it's hard to um, articulate in a pithy way because it's it's you know, frankly, much easier to say design thinking kind of solve the industry, and it's like, well, you know, it's an absolutist statement. It's not really like that, and it, equally, it's not the same as just hiring a CDO and then you're done. It's kind of it's always going to be somewhere in between. Um, so I think, you know, there's this thing about the way that then you do design, if you were a chief design officer, which you know, I have been in places and it, and it's the way that you articulate that is, is really a delicate balancing act because one of the things designers can do is, uh, integrative thinking, you know, pull people around topics in different ways, um, propositional or synthetic right. capabilities. It's not just analysis it's actually, you know, proposing different scenarios, if you do that in a way that is enabling uh, other people to be part of that process, right? Um, effectively co-designing without them having to be the professional designer <laughs> means yeah. the professional designer's job is one of then nurturing, uh, stimulating, guiding, proposing. It's a very different type of designer. It's not the traditional sort of authorial figure of the maestro in the old right. sense. The, the person that will make all the choices for you and that's you know that's what you get yeah um so then again from my background very much it's much more of this kind of um how do we integrate multiple moving parts around possible better versions of today right uh, and take people with you because i'm interested then in scaling that or i'm interested in that happening and i think there's more likely there's more chance of that happening if people have been part of the process the process is going to be richer because other people have been part of right. the process. Right. So it's a, it's a different kind of designer in that sense, which I think takes the heat off what I said previously, because you could you could read what I said previously as uh, in a very patronizing way. Yeah, sure, you will like pick out curtains, but you're not a real professional designer. So, but I, I would couch that in the in the sense that so the job now of the real professional designer is not to be that old maestro, right? This yeah, dictator yeah, yeah. at all, but actually their job is. Um, um, deeply involved in enabling collaboration, deeply empathetic, you know, working your way through very complex environments and understanding um, people and uh, psychology and sociology as much as matter, yeah. you know, material choices in whatever design trade you're in. So I think there's um, that just kind of softens what I was saying about design thinking stuff before, that then as a result of that, there's a way of practicing as a designer which absolutely has yeah. to take people with you. And yeah. that's that's a very different kind of design practice, I think. Um, but I'd argue that that equally is something that is a skill or a capability. And therefore, you know, I think could be uh, people, if, if, if college degrees in design had that kind of emphasis to it, so you weren't just learning kerning or, you know, roof supporting joists or... <laughs> Yeah, you know, have to design the drivetrain of a v VW, but you were also understanding co-design practice, collaboration processes, organizational theory, little bits of economics, you know, just understanding the drivers mm -hmm. people have in their head. That would be a much richer kind of designer as a result. Yeah. And it would enable them to be more um, useful in the context of design thinking, actually. Yeah. You'd, you'd, uh, you'd have a, a more illiterate 
crew to work with and you'd still have a very strong role for the professional designer as the integrator or you know the kind of orchestrator of some of those things i love that yeah well it's kind of it's um again i'm really thought about it coherently but I, you know i do think that's I'm, I'm really interested in design education and i kind of engage with it in um, different ways but it's i still think there's uh there's a real opportunity to figure out what's a, what's a design education for now that looks at this these kinds of issues around design um while still respecting at some point you're going to need a discipline specialist whether it's architecture right. or graphic design you know the stuff to learn there is important you understand yeah joseph muller brockman and you know mies van der rohe that it's just um uh, it's not enough to do that anymore. Speaking of design education, that was something else that I wanted to uh, to talk to you a little bit about because you have taught throughout your career also. And so I'd love to hear a little bit just about your own teaching experience and the types of classes you're teaching. And then are these things you're talking about of kind of including these other things in design education? Have you found ways to do that kind of within the system that exists already or within the classes, the types of classes that you're teaching? Yeah, yes and no. As in, um, I have taught a fair bit, as you say, and it's partly in the blood. My parents were teachers, so oh, there's no way I could, in different ways, but no way I could avoid it. Um, and I find it incredibly useful, like I said, in the same way that writing does as well. As in, I also find it personally useful uh, in a kind of reflexive way to understand um, what I'm thinking about or what I think about. Um, so so I find it useful. And in that sense as well, then it's quite exploratory for me. And because I'm not the kind of, when I do do teaching, it's not like I've got to, you know, fill semester after semester filling the same thing, heading towards a master's program, like actual teachers do. Right. right. <laughs> um, so I can be quite kind of free form and come in and do something and then get the hell out, which, uh, <laughs> really which is the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I abdicate all responsibility. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, so within that, then I've tried lots of different things just to, just by definition. So, okay. and I, and I, I guess I've taught at places also that I find interesting. So, um, whether that's somewhere like the Copenhagen Interaction Design Institute, which I find an interesting place to then teach that kind of stuff. And in that kind of context, I'm often talking about then cities or urban systems or, the wider context of products and how they end up in the world. You know, I'm not right. really going to teach them about interaction design in that context because they're getting proper interaction design training elsewhere. Um, and then conversely, you know, to places like the Bartlett's an architecture school in London at UCL, you know, the sort of first or second best in the world, depending on who makes the list. Um, I'm actually teaching those guys more about interaction design and service oh, okay. design. Sort of, you know, so I kind of, uh, it's not really not done on purpose. It's not like some Machiavellian trick to say, hey, I'll teach them the thing they don't know, and then I'll sound really smart. Right. But, <laughs> but it is like, so what's, what's the useful thing to do in this context? And so, so in the context of an architecture and urban design course, I'm then thinking about user-centered design, human-centered design, um, service design, multi-touchpoint thing, strategic design, where the answer doesn't have to be a building just because you're in an architecture course, you know, it's sort of uh, to begin with the architecture degree is structured very much around the practice of building, which makes perfect sense. And there's a process one has to go through in order right. to end right. there. But at the same time, those skills, if unhooked from building, are massively useful in other design contexts. So I'm then interested in that bit from my point of view. Then you say, well, um, you know, the, 
if you want to change a city or you want to change the way that a city works, um, doing that by making buildings is a really slow and awkward, cumbersome way to do it. You know, it's like yeah. you know, of all yeah. the tools when you're looking at your table in front of you, it's like, yeah, go and pick the slowest, heaviest one. Right. Uh, you know, that's, that's one answer, but it's clearly there are other answers. So I can really help them understand how to open up their thinking. And one thing I've always wanted to do on a, an architecture degree, I'm not done yet, but would be to say, you know, how, how could you affect maximum change in a city one way or another, which I know is a kind of a hubristic thing to say in the first place because the city is sort of out of control. But nonetheless, how could you, I mean, out of control in a good way, um, how could you affect change, not by making buildings, but by just changing the building code? Mm-hmm. So the building code, again, from my background, with a different kind of code in my head when I say that. Right. Feels like the code that writes the city. You know, the building code defines what setback or massing or height or material choices are possible, and which ones aren't. Yeah. Um, so in tweaking that, and this is something I learned a lot from Brian. He might have talked about this on in your conversation with him around the Low to No projects. Yeah, so, I mean, they really kicked it off. Marco and Brian and Justin, and then I joined that team. But that was super interesting. The the, the most interesting for me was actually changing the building code in Helsinki to enable mm. timber building, wooden buildings at scale, which was not done by making a building directly. People know how to make wooden buildings. It's just the code stopped them doing it. So we used the fact that we wanted to make a timber building, Citra, uh, the body we worked for, um, as a reason to have the conversation with the city about changing the building code. Once you have, you know, X tens of millions of euros on the table and say we want to make a building, then it's easier to get their attention. So but in changing that building code, you enable multiple buildings to emerge like that. Right. Many, many other people can also then use that code to produce timber buildings. So that isn't traditionally thought about from an architecture practice, that kind of how do we enable a systemic change, not by making a building, but actually changing the building code. So that's, that's something... Um, that then is, you know, clearly there's a strategic design kind of curriculum emerging in my head. And we're doing some work with UCL at the Bartlett, but in another institute on, uh, you know, uh, basically a a master's of public administration. So it'd be like, instead of the MBA, which basically lazy people do when they have to um, get some credibility. I mean, the MBA does that for you in a way. But um, it's also widely discredited. <laughs> but there's, there's no real alternative for that. Saying, well, but what about public administration? Right. In the, right. the MPAs exist, but not in the same way with the same credibility level that the MBA has. So, so we're thinking about what would a curriculum be around that? And one of the modules I'd be looking at would be strategic design within that. So right. How do you right. start thinking in that way? Uh, collapsing policy and delivery together, bringing in user-centered thinking as part of that, thinking about this wider set of systemic effects that you can unlock. How do you prototype with policy, for instance? All of these things that, again, traditionally are very hard to do. So there's there's kind of um, an emerging thought around strategic design education there, which I think could bolt onto the end of a degree like architecture. Mm-hmm. Arguably, it would with interaction design and service design as well. Potentially graphic design, although I think it's not quite so attuned to that thinking. I mean, graphic, some graphic designers clearly are, but um, you probably are, but many graphic designers aren't trained to yeah. systems. And- well, well, that's that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about, because something that I found when I teach graphic design students, and this is a conversation I've had with a lot of other people on the podcast and with just my uh, professor colleagues, is... 
you know, a kind of future of design education where it isn't just about making designed objects, posters, websites, books, but yeah. to start bringing in some of this more system thinking. And yeah. it's a challenge both to teach, but also for the students, because some, this is a, a, a very kind of generalized statement, but there's a lot of students that just want to make cool design stuff and aren't primed for, mm -hmm. for thinking like that. And I'm, yeah. the, the question I'm getting to it, I guess, is, um, what are your are your students who who you know may, might be studying architecture? Is this something to to have a class where it's like maybe a building isn't the answer? What's the reception to that, or um, is that something that's kind of uh, celebrated? I think it'd probably be the same. As in, okay. I, I think on an architecture degree, you also have people wanting to make. Uh, what do you call it? Cool design stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's just that it's a um, different medium, yeah. um, but it's the same instinct. And that, I, you know, it's fine. It's totally fine. I think uh, we need posters. We need buildings. You know? right, <laughs> we, need right. so we need automobiles. Well, we don't need automobiles, but we need <laughs> bikes and buses. Right. right. Um, so so I'm, I'm fine with that. It's like, how do you get to the 10%, 20%, 30%? Right. I don't know what percent, but actually want to go in that way and at the moment there's not really much of a place for them really they they might figure that out afterwards if you get lucky like um you, you know you hang around enough like me for instance then you'll figure it out uh if you're like brian or justin i'm talking about brian boyer and justin cook they do they did architecture they right. bump into marco steinberg as their teacher who's an architect as well they end up thinking the way they do as a result but i still guess a lot of the other architects in there in their peers wouldn't have gone that way. So, and it's hard, you know, there isn't really a profession of strategic designer. It's not, you know, you, right. you can write it on a business card, but basically it's, you might as well write something in another language because you're going to immediately get the question, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Um, can you translate that for me? So, so yeah, I think uh, it's not like I've, I've struck a rich scene of students uh, in their thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, but definitely I can see when we teach this kind of stuff. And like I said, it can be in an interaction design context or an architecture context. You're switching the scales and the tools. Right. There's a load of students that start getting interested in that. And that's that's... That's when I was working at Fabrica briefly uh, right. in Italy when I was running that place. You know, that was a chance to think about a school um, in a very, you know, genuinely kind of holistic sense, really. And it was interesting because um, because there was no certification associated with the school. As right. in you went there for a bit, you had a great time, you learned a ton of stuff, and then you left. Right. And that's actually pretty much the same model. And, and, and I'm not downplaying that, but I'm saying that's the best model. But <laughs> that's pretty much the same model as CIID in Copenhagen, oh. as Strelka in Moscow, you know, Sandberg yeah. Institute in Amsterdam and so on. Like, I think amongst the best design schools in the world or design school-ish type things, there is no certification. There is, and you don't get a master's or a bachelor's or whatever. Right. So you start thinking, okay. oh, that's interesting. So why is that? And like, because you have the freedom and and capability to do genuinely multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or perhaps even transdisciplinary work. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have the ability then to switch scales and context very freely. You have the ability to address complex problems from multiple angles because you're not trying to pop out a bachelor's in graphic design right. or an MA in automotive or vehicle design, but something 
much more rounded than that. And certification doesn't really enable you to do that currently because it's basically on those tracks, which if you look at what those tracks are, they pretty much map onto 20th century, right? maybe even 19th century contexts. Right. And so uh, that I find, you know, sort of troubling and problematic, but also then there's a huge opportunity for saying, so what would a design school be that could shift through scales and systems so effortlessly? At what stage can you do that is an interesting question because with Fabrica we pick people up uh, postgraduate basically, mm-hmm. so they're already coming as a, let's say a graphic designer with a B, with a bachelor's behind them or a, or or you know some years practice to that effect. They were all kind of 20, 20 years to twenty seven years twenty six years um, old, uh, but they could then also they could have come from a music background. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, a journalism background, an architecture background, uh, a code or software background, and so on. So, so they were already they already had a kind of a core discipline, and then it was I sometimes call it like an unfinishing school. You know, <laughs> yeah, it would be a place where you could explore. So, how does my discipline work alongside that guy's and that, that guy's? And you know, and yeah, there, like, how does that actually come together as a thing around this complex problem? So that's the kind of school I have in my head when I'm thinking about. The answer to your question. It's um, there are a few examples around that I pointed out, but it, it's kind of it's deliberately running against the way that most education works, or at least it's at least sitting on the end of it and taking advantage of the fact that basic educa- basic education education is doing the basic education training. Right. It's fine. Right. So then then what? Right. Is the question. I wanna I wanna shift gears a little bit. I think this is going to connect to education a bit, but I, I want to talk about writing because mm-hmm. I first came to your work and kind of discovered you through your writing, uh, mostly through City of Sound, your blog that you've had for 20 years or so? Since, nearly, since 2001, I guess. So um, 17, and, 18 years. It's a ridiculously long time. And, and what I, well, what, the reason that I, I bring it up is because what I love about your blog is exactly what you're talking about with education is it's this kind of multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary where you're kind of writing about all of these scales. And Mm. so what I'm curious about is kind of how writing fits into your work or the relationship between that practice of writing to the practice of designing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, maybe you, following that previous question, maybe you made me think that what I'm doing with the writing there is kind of sublimating my desire to have a design school. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's exactly what I was yeah. thinking, too. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. But I think it's kind of, you know, it enables me to explore ideas yeah. um, freely because no one's really paying me to right. do something for them. You know, so I'm writing for myself. It's a very selfish act in a way. But then. The nice thing about the internet changing that mode of writing is that then it's in public and then I guess other people can read it and derive more or less benefit from it. So it's, um, it is, but it is for me basically a very kind of, again, self-reflexive thing. I mean, the writing over time has got harder and harder to fit in or it's been then built around people commissioning things Mm. from me. And right. so I've written something. I've then written a lot professionally, you know, sort of halfway through, I guess, the life of the blog. It then became, so I was asked to write this for that or this for that or this right. for this person. And then I used the blog actually to unpack what was going on with the writing or have the, right. Right. the right. editors right. cut, you know, they didn't make yeah. the journal. Yeah. 
So, um, so it's been a little bit directed by others, but at the same time, it's still um, effectively a selfish act. But um, it's a format that enables me to roam freely in the way you just asked about the education. Right. And, right. and part, as I said previously, my, because I'm an autodidact when it comes to design, um, I've always had this very acquisitive, inquisitive kind of uh, spirit around it. So I, partly because I haven't been schooled in that right. way, enables me not to either see the boundaries or not worry about them too much. Yeah. So while I, you know, I, um, so while I would read and then incorporate ideas from Joseph Brockman and Paul Brand, Paul Rand and others and so on, um, I could easily then go and read about you know, a musician or a politician or a writer and or a football player and find something that for me would connect that. And then I find also writers that also write in that way. Yeah. I think the other thing there is that, you know, cities has always been this context for my work and the con and the, and cities is not something again that can be nailed right. down and by right. definition it's a container for other things. Basically all almost all of human rights. <laughs> right. So um so if that's your like milieu then it's again very hard to draw a line around it and yeah. Yeah, and then to understand that my particular relationship with cities is then again not as an architect or an urban planner but you know and then end up being called something like an urbanist which is again an equally ridiculous job title but it's um someone whose job is cities so then by definition or whose love is cities or whose culture is cities so and then what? So it's then understanding the relationship between, okay, the cultural life, the economic life, the built fabric, all of those things are part of that mix. It can't be then just one thing. You know? Yeah, and you know, it's, but talking about writing for you still largely being something that's that's a selfish kind of for you endeavor, I have a really, this is a probably reductive, boring question, but because uh, you had mentioned, you know, finding time for it. What what impresses me about your writing is how much you do and that the blog is still like a real blog. Like, it's not a series of tweets. It's sometimes yeah. thousands of words. Are you yeah. are you writing every day? Like, what is that practice? <laughs> what is that like? Do you kind of always have a list of drafts that you're working on? What's that look like for you? Kind of. Um, well, I'm writing every day. I'm going mean, to write a load in my work. I and mean, right. a lot of my design work, in a funny way, is expressed through a combination of words as much as images. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing as part of my job. I do a lot of talking as part of my job. Uh, you know, someone asked me the other day in Australia, you know, so you seem to, you know, like give words to people as the output. And oh. sometimes is, which is interesting because, I mean, uh, uh, she hadn't seen all of the drawings. Because <laughs> right. um, sometimes it is also those as well, but there's definitely a large part of it that just my output is just words because yeah. it enables me to unlock a different way of thinking about something. You know, just you can give someone a drawing and they, that unlocks it. Some other people might need to have some words, so so I'm comfortable with that. Um, so there's a ton of writing going on all the time. I think the other thing is that uh, I am usually having yeah, there's usually a set of drafts kind of kicking around like text files here and yeah. there. Um, but as, as I sort of, again, it's kind of got more and more about these longer form pieces, I've tended to then work on those, um, in the, in kind of periods of things. So okay. I'm, I don't think I'm writing anything. I should be writing something right now about high density schooling, but, um, and education. But, oh, interesting. Uh, 
but so I need to start thinking about that this weekend. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's a bit like that, but there's always scraps of things around, but it's just like a, a scrapbook, you know, just like yeah. a sketchbook. It's just the same practice in that sense. It just happens to be words into the scribbles. Right. Um, and just as with a sketchbook, where you might also paste stuff in there or you have a Pinterest board. I mean, those text files are also full of quotes from other people or right. Insta paper. I have like, probably tens of thousands of articles in there, which <laughs> yeah. I never read, obviously. But yeah, so it's kind of quite magpie-like in that sense. And so the writing is quite um, incremental and sort of yeah. creative over time. Because um, I'm not really a proper writer, that's the thing. Like a, a proper writer can just hit a 5,000 word limit or a 1,000 word limit on a given subject just like that. Yeah. My, you know, if I get us to write 2,000 words, it ends up being 8,000 words. Um, <laughs> right. right. Come back, you know, so, because I'm not a proper writer. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that, I mean, this this leads in nicely to kind of my, my final two questions, because you had mentioned that you have these text files of these things you're thinking about, you have to write about high-density schooling. I'm curious, yeah. you know, what are the, what are the subjects that are on your mind right now? What are the things that are kind of fascinating you and that, that you're thinking about a lot? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, there's not much that I don't find interesting in some way or other. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, no, it's crazy. It's, you know, like right now the World Cup is on. I'm a big football oh, fan. Yeah. You know, so all I think about is that. And then, of course, then that spins out into oh, the way that team's working is actually a really good management model, you know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I love you know, there's a lot of that lateral kind of thought connection. But yeah. um, no, I think I think there's something I keep coming back to, which is this sense of uh, cities and the way that they can change. We have a set of technologies ahead of us now as regards cities that enable us to move in a slightly more agile, iterative, human-centered, malleable, adaptive kind of way. Right. Um, and I, you know, I would have liked to have said that about 10 years ago, but it wasn't really the case. But you know, now, because of a funny mixture of very old technologies like the bike right. and very new things like autonomous buses yeah, or very old things in a way uh, like waste composters and stuff or new things like solar cells or old things like cooperative building projects or new things like digital fabrication of buildings. You know, we have this really lovely interplay between the way that cities used to work in this very organic, almost kind of pre-20th um, century sense, and then this genuinely 21st century right. pattern to them. And I think that's where I, it's where, you know, with, with digital design and technology or interaction design, service design techniques, I'm really just smuggling that playbook into then urban planning and architecture and urban design, trying to anyway, and see right. see what works there. Um because part of that is to do with the process, then you can take this more human-centered, iterative, kind of systems-thinking-led approach that is common to us from service design, and, and also the kind of transformation that goes with that that's common from the tech world. Um, but there are also bits of kit. So there are new types of spaces, new types of buildings to design. Right. And, and again, those are what I find interesting there is, that is this really kind of pulling back to the human or, the, or environmental aspects, which have been difficult to get um, to the right level of priority previously. And so it needn't be a tech thing. It could be like these amazing cooperative housing projects in Berlin mm -hmm. and Zurich and places like that, uh, arguably Melbourne now as well, where they're just being able to build around the way that people actually live their lives. Right. 
it's not generic buildings as if we have generic people, but it's like <laughs> right, right, it's right. co-designed with those people. In the way that when we're making a digital thing, we're trying to make it, you know, specific in terms of product market fit, that kind yeah, of language. Yeah. So, so that I found fascinating because that turns the value propositions upside down. You have with completely different governance models. You end up thinking about like, so what's a 21st century city governance function look like? What's a 21st century city making team? What does it mean to be a citizen or a resident in that kind of city? Um, how do I move around? How do I, what, what sort of work am I doing? Who do I play with? You know, all of those things. Are that's so interesting. I know it's super good, and that, that's getting then then getting that through in a world uh, of you know construction of built environments and urban governance and national right. governance, which is very right. intransigent right. and conservative, is really hard. But that's that seems genuinely interesting, and it can spin out in any number of different directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that's that's so interesting. My last question. Uh, this is a question that I ask everybody, but I'm especially curious because you had mentioned a couple times how you're this kind of autodidact in design and. Mm kind of shifting between disciplines um who who are the you know if you were to put together a book list or or a list of writers who have kind of influenced you or kind of shaped the way that you think about all of this that we've talked about um who are some of those people or some of those books that would be on that list god <laughs> such a hard question or even, um, or even people that you're reading right now, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the canonical list. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, the canonical list is too hard, for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I do have a set of books above my desk that I go to time and again, and they're a mixture of even things that I don't necessarily fully agree with, but they're just kind of, you know, things that are stuck with me and there's a really i'll just i'll just remember them rem, remember them randomly rather than coherently okay so it's not that works it's just the thread, but um there's a funny things that are sort of sort of almost anti-architecture like how buildings learn by Stuart oh, yeah. brand yeah uh, i love that book or there's a funny one called undesigning the bath by leonard corin which is about oh, I don't know that. basically the act of bathing as a as a ritual oh, and interesting how, you know he's kind of originally written from a californian slightly hippie-ish perspective, but then it's about Japanese bathing culture, Finnish bathing culture, stuff like that. So this kind of weird mixture of the human experience there. I think Johanny Palazma, who's a Finnish architect, sort of follows that theme, which is about kind of sensory understanding okay. of places and buildings. I think uh, Junichiro Tanizaki's In Praise of Shadows, which is oh, yeah. kind of this Japanese classic. Um, so all of those things are about this kind of very sensory or environmental understanding right. of place right. but I'd, I'd equally read Le Corbusier which is sort of the opposite of that to some, uh, you know it's all right yeah um, <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of fiction I, you know I go oh, to a yeah. lot and there's writers that are non-fiction stroke fiction there's, there's an English guy called Jonathan Rabin who lives in Seattle now and has done for many years but he wrote a book in 1974 called Soft City which oh, is, I don't know this it's really interesting because he, he kind of he's already talking then about the way that a computer might change the city. But for him, there's this very early kind of right. computer-based dating huh. stuff that was going on there. Like if, in this 74, no one was going to imagine Tinder at that distance. <laughs> right. In a funny way, he was talking about that and how people present themselves on it. And, of course, that was linked to this much longer history of how people present themselves in cities. So mm. there's loads of sociology that I grew up with, which I barely read these days, but I might dip into from time to time, like Henri Lefebvre or oh, yeah. Pierre Bourdieu or people like that. It's all about how self and people are complex 
right. shifting kind of mixture of uh, innate character, but then also projected an imagined character and all of those things. So there's a bunch of writers like Jonathan Rabin, maybe Peter Carey, um, Peter mm-hmm. Robb, um, uh, who do that a bit. I think Rebecca Solnit's work oh, yeah. in that context and some of really genuine understanding how cities sort of shift and move. Yeah. Uh, equal I'll draw from there's some like management stuff, which I really hate as a genre. But, uh, <laughs> but then, uh, you know, a lot of my work has to then think, well, how do we, how do we get all of that stuff into the context of boardrooms or city yeah, centers, yeah. kind of, you know, city government rooms? And then I might look at General General Stanley McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, which was recommended to mm-hmm. me by Marco Steinberg, which is about how do you build these agile, kind of autonomous, functional unit teams, actually drawn from the U.S. military in Iraq, oh, okay. which is oh, kind okay. of fascinating as an organizational model. And then Gillian Tett, who's a financial journalist, but she wrote a book called The Silo Effect about how the problem of silos Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of played out in terms of organizations and cultures. Um, I chanced across this amazing book by this woman who was walking through Japan in 1878 and a kind of an archive copy of this. Like the first, she must be one of the first Westerners to do this because that was when Japan was only really reopening itself. But anyway, some British woman in 1878 okay. just went for a walk uh, with the, as you call it, the indigenous people of Japan. That's kind of fascinating. And the opposite, oh, wow. you know, what you think of as travel writing. But I, I do find that writing about place. Raven does a lot of that, uh, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just endlessly fascinating in a way that you do that so i guess if, the, if there's leaving aside the management stuff if there's any kind of theme there it's um understanding sort of culture and complexity of places and spaces right. and people and the relationship between those things and digging around in that uh good old mud that yeah i mean but then you know I'm, i'll equally i'm an addict for things like the most beautiful swiss book you know 2017 oh, yeah. <laughs> like i'm quite happy to read that and look at that stuff as well yeah so yeah, I mean, um, you, architecture monographs, like anything oh, yeah. Japanese architect recently, uh, like Atelier Bowow, um, Nishizawa, Sana stuff, uh, yeah, Su Fujimoto, yeah. uh, endlessly brilliant and interesting. But again, I think because of this relationship between place and culture and people. Right. So, yeah, anyway, I could go on. But I better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you made it sound like you weren't going to be able to think of any. And then that was probably one of the best lists anyone has has put together for this question. Yeah. Uh, it's totally random because uh, if, if you ask me in five minutes' time, I'll come up with thirty yeah, different ones. Yeah, of course, right? it's always like that. Yeah, I mean, and and that list it was a good mix of some that I was aware of, but uh, a good amount of those I I'm unfamiliar with. So I'm going to be adding those to my list. This was such a great conversation. Like I I said at the beginning, I'm a big fan of of just the way you think about design and and your writing. I've been reading you for years and have have wanted to get you on the podcast for a while. So thank you so much for this. This was, this was so fun. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. And I, I, I really find these conversations valuable personally. And, and it's good talking to you as well, because the way you've framed those questions, I've rethought actually, as I've been going okay. along, Good. what the hell am I doing? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> good. Then I've done my job too. This episode was recorded on July 7th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.